Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to Radio Parallax. We have a very special guest on our program today, former CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite, who will appear in our second segment to share some of the perspectives that decades of experience can bring to news analysis. Mr. Cronkite hosted the CBS Evening News for 20 years before handing that duty over to Dan Rather in 1981. For those of you who may be too young to remember Mr. Cronkite, we're going to spend a bit of time in this first segment reviewing some of his accomplishments. Arguably his single most influential moment came on February 27, 1968, when after traveling to Vietnam to see what was going on in an offensive launched by the North Vietnamese during the Tet New Year, Cronkite returned to openly question the Johnson administration claims that we were winning. He stated that it appeared the U.S. war effort seemed destined to end in a stalemate. Although his editorial questioning fell short of denunciation of the war, Lyndon Johnson decided soon afterwards that if he lost Cronkite, he lost Middle America. Despite Johnson's withdrawal in the 1968 race, the war in Vietnam dragged on for years, but it's clear there was never any push to expand the ground fighting after the period of that Tet Offensive. Instead, the war de-escalated. It is surely not an exaggeration to state that Walter Cronkite's criticism in 1968 changed public perceptions of what was going on in Vietnam and influenced the events that followed. After he concluded his career as a CBS anchorman, a national poll showed that Cronkite was the most respected man in America. And we're eager to bring him to you today, but we don't want to completely abandon our usual format. So let's take a few minutes to review some headlines. As we take the time to do that, I'd like to point out that there are some similarities to our opinions and, and those of Walter Cronkite. In his autobiography, A Reporter's Life, Cronkite pointed out that he always had grave reservations about television news. The 22 minutes of news that comes with a half-hour show is sufficient only to give viewers a look at the boldest headlines of a given day. CBS chairman William Paley once famously set one of the broadcasts of the evening news into type. It filled but two-thirds of a newspaper page. Walter Cronkite always felt that his broadcast should serve to direct viewers to their newspapers where they could become more fully apprised of what was going on. On this program, we've tried to alert you, the listener, to important stories, especially one that are being ignored or spun in such a way as to obscure what's really going on. Now, we differ from Walter Cronkite's approach considerably in that we cannot even pretend to be objective journalists. Just as the mainstream media has moved away from clear separation of the front page and the editorial page, so have we. But we don't try and label our views as a no-spin zone, like some people we might mention. We make no secret of the fact that what you hear is opinion on this show, but what we're giving you is an honest opinion. That's the great thing about uh, KDVS as a community-affiliated station that's staffed entirely by students, that we can do that. So anyway, let's do some headlines. Item. 
A multi-state outbreak of urinary tract infections caused by a single strain of E. coli bacteria has public health specialists concluding that contaminated food is the cause. A UC Berkeley study of multiple drug-resistant urinary infections in three states indicates that the most likely explanation for a single resistant strain arising in separate locations is through contaminated meat or milk. Now we should point out that bladder infections, or UTIs, are not infectious per se, but they normally arise when gut bacteria find their way into the urinary tract. UTIs account for the second largest number of doctor visits in the U.S. with over 8 million as of 1997. Now, to have a single strain show up in bladders all over the country implies there's a common source for that bacteria that wound up in people's guts. Bacteria are normally in our guts, but the worry here is that we've acquired an antibiotic-resistant strain via food. Since UTIs are so common, strains that won't respond to the usual antibiotics may represent a significant health hazard in the future. And that next question of how did the food acquire the bacteria that's resistant to antibiotics, uh, well, we have to look at uh, one suspicious possibility that, that's based on the fact that 70% of the antibiotics produced in the U.S. each year goes straight into animal feed. And mind you, this is not to treat sick animals. That is used, in essence, as a feed supplement. Now, experience has shown that, you know, for whatever reason, the, the weird diet of corn that we give cattle or the stress of overcrowding conditions, factory farms, whatever, if you add antibiotics like tetracycline or Bactrim to the animal's food, it, uh, it grows at a faster rate. Now, the downside of this is that it is a 100% certainty that this practice is going to result eventually in animals' guts becoming a breeding ground for bacteria that are antibiotic resistant. My colleagues, my, my fellow physicians, are usually shocked to find this out. You're taught in medical school and training uh, to, uh, to be conservative with antibiotic use, not, so you're not going to select out resistant strains. This is why when you go to the doctor, he won't necessarily just you know, throw an antibiotic at your illness. I think we have a giant scandal on our hands here. We're going to talk in the future to researchers at Berkeley. I spoke with Dr. Lee Riley, the author of the study in question. He said he'd be happy to talk to us at KDVS in the future on this. And in the meantime, I think it may be time to start thinking about only consuming meats that are certified as to not having been given antibiotic or hormones. Next week's show, by the way, we're going to take up a, a topic that's of great interest to us, uh, that of mad cow disease. We have some uh, guests that are lined up for that. I think that's going to prove to be some very interesting uh, listening, so I hope you'll tune in next week. Uh, I guess our theme uh, we're starting out with today is where science meets political decision-making. Let's, let's cite three other articles I have here. The Washington Post reported two weeks ago that the Environmental Protection Agency was instructed to set modest limits on mercury pollution, then work backwards to justify those limits. This appeared in an Inspector General's report. Uh, EPA staffers reported pressures from political appointees at the agency. Quote, maybe we would have come to the same conclusion anyway, but we didn't necessarily look at the other options, said one staffer. Um, this controversy is apparently rooted in the Bush administration's plan to require overall reductions at certain limits while allowing credits to be traded. The issue of politics dictating what scientific evaluations should conclude is always murkier when it comes to things like mercury limits. But uh, when we've got e EPA staffers saying things like, quote, I don't think anyone has seen as much political influence in the development of a rule as we saw in this rule. 
think we have to suspect at that point that science really is taking the back seat uh, in the U.S. at present. That Inspector General's report is available, by the way, at www.epa.gov slash oig slash index. Item from Zachary Qual, who is the San Francisco Chronicle Washington Bureau um, reporter. This is from last week. Scientists at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service say they've been forced to alter or withhold findings that would have led to greater protection for endangered species. This comes in a report by the Union of Concerned Scientists, which said that large numbers of fish and wildlife employees say that political appointees are influencing the science that drives decisions to list species as endangered and then protect their habitat. More than half, 50% of who responded to the survey said that agency officials have reversed or withdrawn scientific conclusions under pressure from industry groups. Lexi Schultz from the Union of Concerned Scientists said the political manipulation of science is an ongoing problem with this administration. For more information, I would say go to the website of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Final item on science and politics comes from our H.L. Mencken file. Of course, H.L. Mencken once said, it's pretty hard to believe someone when you know you'd lie if you were in their place. A study conducted in Norway suggested that lobsters and crabs do not feel pain when plunged into boiling water. The 39-page report aimed at determining whether creatures without backbones should be subject to animal welfare legislation concludes it's unlikely that the animal's primitive nervous system allows them to perceive pain. This assertion supports what the lobster industry has claimed for years. Now, we at Radio Parallax, uh, given that your host did get a degree in biology here at this fine institution, doubt this conclusion very much. Um, and of course the lobster industry is going to say that. They don't want people shying away from eating lobster. But I have a hard time not imagining that the primitive brain of an invertebrate does not have wiring to say, you know, this stimulus is bad, get away, you know, just like vertebrates do. I mean. If you step on a tack, the sensation that's bothering you is not a higher brain thing. Now, seeing a bad movie or hearing a bad song, that might be a sort of a, uh, you know, a higher brain function. But that pain from the tack in your heel, I don't know. I, I have a hard time believing the lobster is oblivious to being stuck in the boiling water, but it's a matter that probably can never be settled definitively, uh, unless we can teach lobsters to talk anytime soon. Anyway, I would suspect that it hurts. All right, a few lighter items. We reported a few weeks back about the two men in New York that were uh, charged with telling lawyer jokes in line at the Nassau County Courthouse. Well, it was reported that the charges were dismissed by the grand jury that was convened to look into the matter. Nassau County District Attorney Dennis Tilson said the grand jury considered the evidence in the case and voted to dismiss. Harvey Cash, age 70, and Carl Lanazera, age 65, apparently stood in line waiting to get into the courthouse and told lawyer jokes. Like, how do you tell when a lawyer's lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> a lawyer up in the, and further up in the line told him to shut up and reported them to court officers who arrested them. I guess we can score one for the First Amendment. Ron Kuby, Cash's lawyer and a radio talk show host, said, it's still legal in America to tell jokes. Noting maybe they'll have to put Lana Zara in a federal jokester's protection program. All right, from the Week magazine Only in America file. Motorists traveling a rural road outside in Salem, Oregon, were surprised to see signs crediting the American Nazi Party for cleaning up litter. 
Officials in Marion County said they saw no choice but to let the Nazis into the Adopt-A-Road program after a federal courts gave the Ku Klux Klan the same right in Missouri. Taxpayers had to pick up $500 for the signs. And in their Good Week 4, Bad Week 4 section, we note it was a bad week for progress. Last week, after a remote Louisiana town became the last place in America to get telephone service, resident Elaine Edwards had the new phone in for 15 minutes when it rang. It was a telemarketer. And it was apparently also a bad week last week for Russian dogs after Vladimir Putin announced that the government would arm the nation's mailmen with revolvers. Now, believe it or not, we're going to use that to segue back to the subject of Walter Cronkite. He actually himself once raised a controversy over the issue of the treatment of dogs in Russia. From 1946 to 48, Walter Cronkite and his wife Betsy lived in Moscow. He worked as United Press correspondent and she at the embassy's U.S. Information Agency. Conditions in the post-war period were bleak, to say the least. Walter Cronkite would annoy many in Russia when, in 1971, accompanying President Richard Nixon on his trip to Moscow, Cronkite stood in front of his old apartment building and reminisced in front of the camera. Attempting to draw a favorable picture of improvements in the city he once lived in, he said, Today, you see dogs on leashes and riding in cars. We saw none in the streets of Moscow right after the war. They had all been eaten. Technicians at at a Moscow television station watched that report and subsequently raised hell. Uh, Some young Russian reporters were raging about this insult in the papers and in bars filled with reporters when a grand old man of the Soviet press... Yuri Zhukov of Pravda slammed down a glass and proclaimed in a loud voice, Cronkite is right. You children know nothing of the war. We Muscovites ate our dogs to survive. We think there's something to be said for a perspective that extends over many decades. Walter Cronkite's experience as a reporter began in the 1930s. He began writing for newspapers and dabbled in radio broadcasting while a student at the University of Texas in Austin. He was the United Press reporter in Europe during World War II, and as mentioned, UP Moscow correspondent at the start of the Cold War. He went on to television in its pioneering days in the 1950s. Walter Cronkite was literally the first television anchorman. The term was first used for him during coverage of political conventions. Might be worth noting on the lighter side that the term, the generic term for anchorman in Sweden, is Cronkiter. I got to tell you, we're we so pleased he's joining us here shortly. Mr. Cronkite has said in the past he's, he's almost incapable of not responding to a legitimate inquiry from a fellow news person. And he's clearly sympathetic to those new to the mic. In his autobiography, there's a little, uh, a little story that I think I should, should tell you, uh, he recalled his days as a student broadcaster. Walter Cronkite's very first appearance before a microphone was as a college student in Austin. He had convinced the program manager at KNOW Radio, who he described as a chap scarcely older than myself, to put him, a total neophyte, on the air with daily sports scores. The problem was KNOW had no press service facilities to supply those sports scores. So budding broadcaster Walter derived an ingenious solution. A block away, there was the 6th Street Smoke Shop, a blue-collar establishment filled with 
what he described as overalls-clad, sombrero-topped men of no identifiable profession who sat around small tables playing dominoes and drinking what passed for beer during Prohibition. This bar may not have had much in ambience, but it did have a Western Union sports ticker from which the bartender would occasionally write the baseball scores. So, into the bar every afternoon would come this young University of Texas student with a pipe, some tobacco, and the Austin paper. He'd pretend to read the paper as he committed the baseball scores to memory. He had to memorize who pitched for how many innings, who got extra base hits, and who scored. When he thought he'd had it, he'd check the ticker one last time, casually stroll out the door, then run like hell to the station to type out the data while it was fresh in his memory. Now, whether this was illegal or not was never quite clear. It probably wasn't illegal, but young Walter was afraid to take notes openly or level with the bartender with what he was doing because if he refused him, he'd have been out of a job. I might add at this point that, you know, we're pretty sure our sources won't object to quotes taken from them, but uh, we want to make sure if we bend any rules, we don't break them. By the way, when that baseball season ended, Cronkite applied for a job on the regular staff at the station. Said the program manager was very nice about it, but turned him down, telling him he'd just never make it as a radio announcer. Although he dabbled in radio, most of his career prior to the television years was in the print media. We mentioned working for United Press. In World War II, Walter Cronkite found himself in London uh, at Fleet Street, the newspaper center of the UK. In 42 and 43, he covered the air war over Europe and was in an airplane over the English Channel on D-Day and got to observe that mightiest of invasion forces that was ever assembled as it moved on to the Normandy coast. When the Western Front opened up, Cronkite was dropped into the war by glider. He describes in his, uh, in his autobiography that the proper technique of a glider landing under enemy fire was to dive until G-forces threatened to rip the wings off the plane, then level off to thump into the ground as quickly as possible. Remarking on the pilot dumping 14 of them into the dirt, he wrote years later, I don't recommend gliders as a way to go to war. If you have to go, march, swim, crawl, anything but don't go by glider. In Europe, he covered the Battle of the Bulge, and we would like to, to, to interject at this point that you should check out the NPR website uh, where you can find Walter Cronkite's commentary last December on the 60th anniversary of that last feudal German offensive. There are many other commentaries there also very much worth your while. Please check that out on the NPR website. After Moscow, Walter Cronkite left the United Press, and he set up a Washington bureau for Midwestern radio stations. This was about the time the war in Korea was commencing. After he grew dissatisfied that the stations were not using his coverage effectively, Cronkite sent a telegram to Edward R. Murrow at CBS Radio. Murrow had tried to get Cronkite to join what was then the elite team of broadcasters at CBS Radio, a team later referred to as the legendary Murrow's Boys, including um, many names destined to make their mark in broadcasting. Eric Severide, Charles Collingwood, Richard C. Hodlett, Bill Downs, Howard K. Smith, Winston Burdett, William L. Shire, and many more. Cronkite had actually agreed to join the CBS radio team, then reneged when the UP offered him a raise. He asked in 1950 if he might still join CBS one war late, and uh, Murrow said he could. But with most of the elite reporters in Korea, it fell upon Cronkite, who was really on the B team at CBS, to try his hand at the new medium of television. So it was that with improvisations and a gut sense that his delivery should be informal, Walter Cronkite began delivering the news on television, WTOP in Washington.
It was Walter Cronkite's sense that the news should be presented straight, like the front page of a newspaper, and not like the editorial pages where opinion should be rightfully placed. While he perhaps left a conservative and liberal alike dissatisfied with his middle-of-the-road placement, Cronkite earned the respect of Americans, and in 1962, he took over what were then the extended 30-minute CBS evening news broadcasts. Now, to return to that to editorial, that famed editorial we mentioned at the top of the hour, to simply question whether the information we were getting on Vietnam from the Pentagon and the intelligence sources, to question whether that accurately reflected the reality of the war, was far from a denunciation of the Vietnam War. But so solid was the opinion of Americans that Walter Cronkite was above all trustworthy, that is, simply questioning the matter proved to be immensely powerful. Here are some excerpts from that famed editorial. Who won and who lost in the great Tet Offensive against the cities? I'm not sure. The Viet Cong did not win by a knockout, but neither did we, and the referees of history may make it a draw. This summer's almost certain standoff will either end in real give-and-take negotiations or terrible escalation. And for every means we have to escalate, the enemy can match us. And that applies to invasion of the North, the use of nuclear weapons, or the mere commitment of 100 or 200 or 300,000 more American troops to the battle. And with each escalation, the world comes closer to the brink of cosmic disaster. On the off chance, the military and political analysts are right. In the next few months, we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. You're listening to Radio Parallax here on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. When we return, you'll be with our special guest, Walter Cronkite. 